0: From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. This season's monster hurricanes are not only costing lives and property, the related floods are also unleashing poorly regulated toxic pollution.
1: In the wake of this extreme climate that the whole country seems to be facing, we really need basic chemical safety rules in place so that we know what the best practices are and what to do in an emergency and what chemicals are out there, that that seems basic. Harvey's disastrous flooding has left tens of thousands of homes uninhabitable
0: and highlights the need to recraft the National Flood Insurance Program so people are adequately covered.
2: Now we know after disaster, everybody will get disaster relief. The point of the Flood insurance Program was to say at least those people at risk are paying a portion of that cost through their premiums to reduce the amount of dollars the taxpayers paid for disaster relief.
0: That and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. From PRI and the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. This year's deadly hurricane season is running up a staggering tab in terms of lives lost or disrupted, homes damaged or destroyed, and major shocks to our economy, ranging from huge business and government losses down to spikes in gasoline prices. But there is another cost that is literally below the surface in many cases, and that is the toxic and infectious pollutants which the storms have released into the air as well as the water. In the Houston-Beaumont-Port Arthur region of Texas, benzene, toluene, hydrochloric acid, and sulfur dioxide are just four of the dangerous compounds already known to have been released by the unprecedented flooding from Hurricane Harvey. The region is home to some 3,700 gas, oil, or petrochemical businesses and over 40 Superfund sites. And officials and activists are just beginning to assess the storm-related human health risks, among them the Sierra Club. Cyrus Reed runs conservation efforts for the Lone Star Sierra, and he joins us now. Welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. Hey, what concerns you most about the industrial pollution so far in southeast Texas in the wake of Harvey?
1: Well, first of all, it's just the incredible concentration of these industrial facilities in close proximity to where the hurricane hit, and more importantly, in close proximity to millions of individuals So it's really the cumulative effects of all those refineries, all those chemical plants, all those hazardous waste sites, all those Superfund sites, all within the larger Houston, Beaumont, Port Arthur, all the way down to Corpus area.
0: So how soon will we know exactly how much chemical pollution uh, is out there from this storm?
1: Well, I don't know that we'll ever know exactly. So both the TCAQ, Texas Commission on Environmental Quality, and the EPA, frankly, Put in some temporary rules in place, which gave some flexibility to the industries in the immediacy of Hurricane Harvey. So, a lot of these reports that are required under law to be reported are really being done on a voluntary basis. But what we have seen is more than 2 million pounds of different chemicals being released as part of either emergencies or emergency shutdowns by some of these refineries. But we've also seen spills when there have been accidents. And big concern for the community is the Superfund sites, 13 of which were flooded.
0: Talk to me about the San Jacinto Waste Pits, the uh, Superfund sites. What's in there? What's the risk to public health if uh, the water dissolves or somehow releases those chemicals?
1: Well, it's already been a problem at this site, right? These are old chemical sites, old chemicals that have been buried there. A lot of it is dioxin. Dioxin is a highly dangerous, toxic The EPA has already come up with an initial cleanup plan, but in the meantime, they had only a temporary cap on some of this area, and there is a difference of opinion about whether that cap has been breached. We have an organizer in Houston that's been to the site and says, it's been breached. There's the potential that contaminants have gotten out into the environment and into, frankly, into neighborhoods in that area. EPA is continuing to say, we're assessing it. We don't think there's any immediate danger.
0: Now, the explosion at the Arkema chemical plant is the most obvious example of an industrial site malfunctioning after Harvey and actually being able to see what's going on. I mean, you get
1: a fire and explosion and big black smoke. What was in that smoke? Well, again, I'm going to plead a little bit of ignorance because under the last administration, there were some rules that were passed, some new rules, chemical safety rules known as risk management plans. That companies, refineries and chemical plants were supposed to be required to have that information on site and provide it in terms of emergency. One of the first things the Trump administration did a few months ago was delay that rule until 2019. So literally, we had police and sheriff department responding to an accident where they didn't have a full list of the type of chemicals that were on site and could be released. You know, the main one was a peroxide, a hydrogen peroxide, but there may have been other chemicals released that we don't know about.
0: What's your understanding of why the event at the Arkema plant happened and and what risk might still remain?
1: It really has to do with the chemicals that they were storing on site need to be refrigerated. So when the power went out, those chemicals were highly volatile and reacted. And so although they apparently had a backup power system, it also didn't function. They knew it was going to explode. They said people might want to evacuate a couple miles away from this facility because this thing is going to blow at one point.
0: So you have people living near these Superfund sites that have been flooded along with some of the refineries and chemical facilities. What are those folks who live nearby, what are they noticing and what are they experiencing firsthand?
1: I'm not there, but according to our organizers and people we've spoken to, there is much confusion in the Houston area and north of there in Beaumont and Port Arthur. Whether people should return to their homes or not, whether the testing's been done to make sure it's safe or not. Honestly, a lot of people are returning to their homes even though the the testing hasn't really been done. So we've had not only the Superfund site and the Arkema explosion, but there have been some spills at places like the Valero facility and the Chevron Phillips facility and the Chevron terminal, where we don't know whether that threat has been remediated yet. And yet people live in those areas and are returning. And then you couple that with the fact that not even talking about industrial and chemical plants, we also have a lot of About a third of the wastewater treatment plants in the area did fail and had overflows. There may be a lot of high levels of fecal coliform, you know, poop that got out there and is still either in puddles or in the soil that people need to be careful about.
0: As we're speaking, we're closely watching Hurricane Irma, and it seems that Harvey was a long time ago. But it wasn't so long ago we were looking at pictures of people wading through waist deep, even neck Deep water, you're telling me that this water likely had, well, some poop along with some toxic chemicals, along with, I mean, what were people exposed to? What's the health risk here?
1: Well, according to the TCQ, of the 1,200 wastewater treatment plants in that general area, 800 of them were working, which means about 400 weren't working. And we have almost 100 reports of wastewater overflows at some of those plants. Now, if people who waited through that then cleaned off, didn't put the same clothes back on, they probably should be okay. But there's going to be, you know, a lot of people obviously are are cleaning out their house, replacing the the drywall, because a lot of it is likely very contaminated.
0: How can Texas move forward now with a just recovery that doesn't burden poor people and low-income people of color in these areas who already obviously going to be struggling in the wake of this storm, not having a whole lot of capital resources to begin with anyway?
1: Well, I think one is, as I mentioned before, we really need to increase funding for the basic testing to make sure these areas are safe to go back to. So that would be one step. And in particular, the Superfund, where we have large amounts of chemicals on site. But we also need to look at our rules and regulations. So the Trump administration decided to delay these chemical safety rules in the wake of this extreme climate that the whole country seems to be facing we really need basic chemical safety rules in place so that we know what the best practices are and what to do in an emergency and what chemicals are out there that that seems basic the other is we have what's called the railroad commission of texas which does not regulate railroads it regulates oil and gas it's a historical name but they're one of our most important state agencies and yet their rules are very outdated an example of this is They don't require subsurface shutoff valves for oil and gas wells and for disposal wells in flood zones and in hurricane zones. And it seems like a basic thing is we should have shutoff valves so when there is a storm, we can shut off those wells and make sure they don't leak. We have waste sites here in Texas that take drill cutting and fluids from oil and gas production And yet we only design them for a 24-hour rain event, which means anytime you have more than 24 hours of rain, those things are going to flood and affect neighborhood and land. And that seems like something we have to change. And we have outdated spill response rules, what to do in a time of flood, how do oil and gas producers report, how do they clean it up? So we've got a lot of regulatory work to do here, as well as the EPA, but just here in Texas as well as increased funding. But there may be some neighborhoods where we need to relocate people. That's gonna be expensive, but in some cases we're gonna have to do it.
0: With climate change, with global warming, we're seeing this change in the hydrologic cycle, the rain cycle, it's kind of like it's swallowed steroids. And right now, as we're talking, we're looking at the aftermath of of Harvey. Irma is doing its thing. We're also seeing crazy fires out in California due to, to dryness. From your perspective, what needs to be done to protect the public in the aftermath of these things? Because all these events create, well, not exactly the healthiest conditions.
1: You know, it's, it's kind of like the 12-step program. First, you've got to admit you've got a problem. And we need both political parties, not just one, to admit that climate change is real. And therefore, we need to be prepared for it. We need to try to mitigate it as best we can, but also be resilient about it and design our cities and our institutions in a way to withstand these extreme events. The city of Houston should do that as well as they rebuild. You know, a lot of cities out there that are more forward-thinking have looked at green infrastructure. What's the way that you can use parks and green space to absorb floods or hurricanes? Hydrological cycle, yes, is changing, but we also have more people and more concrete, which makes for flashier floods.
0: Cyrus Reed is the conservation director of the Lone Star chapter of the Sierra Club. Thanks so much for taking the time today.
1: I appreciate it. Thank you.
0: While premiums have been rising, they don't cover claims, and the program runs out of cash on September 30th, unless Congress acts. Flood insurance needs a rethink to put it on a sound financial footing, and the U.S. needs new policies to help mitigate future disasters. Well, in a recent Washington Post op-ed, two flood risk experts, Larry Larson and David Conrad of the Association of State Flood Managers, describe how the Great Flood of 1993 in the Upper Midwest briefly focused federal attention on the importance of mitigating flood risks. But that sense of urgency quickly waned, and at-risk communities, including Houston, Texas, largely ignored the need to mitigate flood risks. And here now to discuss the issue is Larry Larson. He's policy director and director emeritus of the Association of State Floodplain Managers. Larry, welcome to Living on Earth.
2: Thank you very much, Steve. It's good to be with you.
0: Now, so, Larry, you clearly hope the nation would learn its lesson after the 1993 floods, how close did we come to getting flood policy right at that point uh, in your view?
2: Well, I think in terms of national policy, we did something after 1993 that we had not been doing prior to that. Prior to that, both in disaster relief and our flood programs, we were telling people, we will help you rebuild after a disaster, but we will only make you whole. We will only build you the way you work. We will not help you mitigate. We started to do mitigation after 1993. About 10,000 structures were bought and they were moved out of the floodplain in the 1993 floods. That was the first time we did that. So now after a flood, the disaster program will not only help you rebuild, there's a portion of the disaster program called the Hazard Mitigation Grant Program that communities can put together an application and send to FEMA and the state saying, here's a neighborhood of 50 homes that were flooded. The ones that are really low, here's an application, we'd like to relocate those people out. The other ones, we'd like to elevate three feet so they're above the flood level and then people can afford the insurance. And it's cost effective. It returns $4 for every dollar we spent. In the case of flood, it's $5 for every dollar. And we do the same in the flood insurance program. Policyholders actually fund a mitigation program called the Flood Mitigation Assistance Program at $175 million a year. FEMA uses that money and tries to focus that money on buying out those severe repetitive loss structures. It's the ones that are really draining the program. You've heard those stories. About 25 to 30 percent of the claims are from those 2 percent of the, the policyholders. So that's one that they try to focus on. So
0: what is the present tab now that the federal government is picking up in terms of disaster relief?
2: Well, about... 30 years ago, the federal government paid about 24 cents on the dollar for disaster relief. Now it's about 76 cents. So what we're saying is the federal taxpayers picking up more of these costs. Well, if you look at where floods are happening, the big floods are happening in states that may do the least in terms of preventing flood damage. And then, of course, Congress says, well, this was a major disaster because Nothing was resilient. So now instead of giving you 75-25, which is a standard cost share for disaster relief, 75-FED, 25% non-FED, we'll give you 100% FED, you know. So we're kind of encouraging bad behavior with some of those policies. We've got to quit incentivizing poor behavior and instead let's incentivize good behavior.
0: What about allowing people to build in these areas that have been known to flood and get insurance now? Why can people do this now?
2: Well, we still sell car insurance to those people who have accidents. Now, they may pay more for their car insurance, but the same is true in flood. Now, we know after disaster, everybody will get disaster relief. The point of the flood insurance program was to say at least those people at risk are paying a portion of that cost through their premiums. So it makes sense for those in the floodplain to actually buy the insurance We don't want to say don't buy the insurance because then we're only going to have disaster relief taxpayer dollars to help them after the flood. So we need to better marry the flood protection standards in the NFIP with the disaster program to say, wait a minute, if you do a better job of making sure new development is at less risk of flooding, you'll be getting a better portion of disaster relief. So we got to build in some kind of incentives. There was a proposal to do that the last administration that's still being considered by this one called the disaster deductible saying to the states, every state will have a deductible that you must pay before we come in with the federal taxpayer dollars after a disaster. But the more you're doing to reduce floods on new development and redevelopment, the more credit we'll give you so that your deductible goes way down and you may be already doing enough that you have no deductible.
0: By the way, um, Why is it important for the nation to really get its flood risk mapping up to date? And how comprehensive is is the mapping of flood zones uh, today?
2: Maps are the basis for what communities do in guiding development. They need that map. There are, in the United States, about 3.5 million miles of coastlines and rivers that have floodplains. The NFIP has mapped about 1.2 million of those miles, so that's about a third so that means we have two-thirds of the floodplains in the United States that have not yet even been mapped. Now, a lot of those are out in smaller communities and rural areas and because FEMA has focused on doing highly urbanized areas where they have the highest policy count, where they want to have as good a map as they can to get their premium rates determined. But the problem is now that we've, we keep redoing those maps instead of going out into the what I call cornfields and, and cow pastures, Those are the areas we need to map now and get ahead of development because that's where development is occurring, outside the urban areas and the suburban areas. A developer comes out and says, I'm going to put 200 homes out here. Do I need a floodplain permit? And the community says, I guess not. We, We don't have a flood map showing we have a floodplain out there, so go ahead and develop. They do that, and then later FEMA comes along and says, well, we need to map that because there's development out there. They'll map it, and now all those people that built probably built Two or three feet too low, and now they're going to have to buy flood insurance and the premiums are going to be up because they didn't build high enough. That's where the screaming starts and the people start shouting and saying, wait a minute. And that could have been avoided if we would map ahead of development. It costs only 1% or 2% higher to elevate a structure two feet on the development cost. So if we can get ahead of development, we can start to prevent some of these problems.
0: A number of folks said that in Houston, development was permitted in areas that made no sense in terms of floodplain, but how much did all that development affect the flooding in Houston?
2: A tremendous amount. You can't pave over thousands of acres of what was wetland or a lot of it was pasture area and so on and not have an impact on runoff because you took all that pervious surface that would soak up water and turned it into an impervious surface where the water simply runs off.
0: How well can you guess what happened in Houston in terms of uh, an increased flood level due to this, all this impervious surface that was there? How many feet do you think it might have cost people in, in areas of Houston to pave it over so much?
2: I can't really say. I mean, you could do a study on that, and Charlotte Mecklenburg found out that if their small watersheds fully developed, the flood levels would go up anywhere from 2 to 9 feet. They mapped future conditions so that when people built it would be safe when full development occurred. So that shows you what kind of impact development has on a watershed. We're doing a little better job of of doing our studies on a watershed basis, but as you know, community boundaries don't match watersheds. So giving this community A to work with community B to consider the runoff and the impact that that development is gonna have. That's one of the reasons we developed what we call the no adverse impact approach and try to help communities look at this to say, don't just look at what's happening in your flood plan, look at what's happening in your watershed. And if all that stuff is increasing your flood flows, you better account for that. That's a no adverse impact approach.
0: What's under consideration now in the Congress in terms of reforming the flood insurance policy, and I gather making an appropriate link to disaster relief with it?
2: Well, the House bill has a heavy focus on allowing the private sector to sell flood insurance directly which is kind of surprising because they opened it up in 2012 in the reform of 2012. And frankly, the, the private market is coming aggressively into the program now. It's selling private flood insurance throughout the nation now. They own, they have a small amount. It's, the numbers I've read are around 200,000 policies compared to the NFIP at 5 million. And our biggest concern with private flood is the way the bill was written, the private flood policies would not be required to pay a $50 a year policy fee that all NFIP policyholders pay. That money pays for about half of the cost of new mapping and pays for all the floodplain management providing assistance to those 22,000 communities that belong to the program because they need to know what their role is. They need to be monitored. They need to understand their maps and know how to do the job. So we're very concerned about that. In the Senate, what you're seeing is more efforts to address the mapping and say, let's get the mapping done, authorizing more money for mapping, that's not appropriations, you understand that's authorization. But they also have a lot of stuff on mitigation and that has to happen. There's a small piece of the flood insurance policy that's very important to mitigation. It's a rider on every policy that says, you have a rider that provides money for increased costs of compliance. Let me explain. It's kind of like uh, your homeowners might have a law and ordinance provision that says if your community, because you were damaged so heavily, and typically that number is 50% of the value, then when you rebuild, you must rebuild to today's code. In the case of flooding, for example, in Sandy, that means, well, today's code may mean you can rebuild at that spot, but you got to elevate your home five feet. Well, that increased cost of compliance provision would provide you up to $30,000 to help you elevate. It, we like that. The problem is that it, we found out between Katrina and Sandy that it costs somewhere between $50,000 and 120000 to elevate a building. So it, for the person that had 50000 in the bank, that 30000 really helps. For the person that's living paycheck to paycheck and says, well, it's going to cost you $80,000, and here's thirty, by the way, that's just another $50,000 loan they got to add on top of the loan they're already struggling to meet. So the Senate provisions are saying, let's increase that to 60 or $100,000 so that people can actually mitigate after the flood. And again, going back to the fact that if we help them mitigate, we're getting a four to one payback to the taxpayers. So let's get that done. So that's a very important piece. And if if that provision can be increased and the, the Senate bills do that, they increase that significantly, we think that that's a move in the right direction.
0: Larry, let's step back for a moment. I want you to give me the big picture for the small person. So if uh, I have a dwelling unit there in in Houston and I had bought flood insurance, what kind of financial ride am I in for now for this, say, uh, $175,000 home that I have?
2: Well, let's assume that, of course, you're only required by the law to buy enough insurance to cover your mortgage. So on that $175,000 home you just talked about, if I had a mortgage for $100,000, that's all i had to buy if i had a mortgage for $20,000 i only had to buy $20,000 with flood insurance and unfortunately the propensity of the average person is to buy the minimum amount so if i had a $20,000 mortgage i bought $20,000 with flood insurance and that's all the bank cares because they know they're going to get their money this program in fact the courts in some court cases the courts have said well this program was really designed to protect the banks not the policyholder so Let's say that person had just had 20000 and now I, I had four feet of water in my house. Well, one feet of water typically costs $20,000. 2 feet of water costs 40000 If you had four or five feet of water, you're probably looking at at least 50% of the value of that structure. You probably had $80,000 in damage. And if you were fortunate that your mortgage was high enough so that you actually had $100,000 worth of coverage, then you'll you'll get pretty good return. And if you didn't have flood insurance, Now you're going to be at the whim of disaster relief. And the disaster program has two major elements. One is called public assistance, which builds roads and highways and sewer plants and water plants and all those public facilities. And individual assistance, which will provide some minimal assistance to individuals. It's usually temporary housing. That's authorized to pay up to $32,000 for a family. The average is about $7,000.
0: sounds to me that a lot of folks who got flooded out And this spate of storms are literally underwater financially and may be tempted simply to walk away from these homes.
2: Well, we saw some of that happen. We've seen that happen in the past. And I think you're going to see more of that happen in the future because as we see these high damage amounts and people not having insurance, it's a problem. And until we get to the point where insurance is ubiquitous and it's probably going to have to be mandatory, our experience is that the only people that buy flood insurance are where it is mandatory to buy it. It's difficult for people to judge risk because people, first of all, don't think their area is going to flood. And if it does flood, they surely don't think it's going to happen to them. That's just the mindset of people, period. And that's, that's a mindset that's very difficult to overcome. And that's one of the problems we face in trying to run a program.
0: Larry, we're seeing rising sea levels with, with climate disruption. How, how does that affect the whole flood insurance uh, program?
2: Uh, What we're going to see along the coast as sea level rises is the insurance companies and the bond rating companies are going to look at the value of that real estate. And frankly, when sea levels go up a foot or two, a lot of that real estate is going to lose value. And it's very high-priced real estate. And suddenly, those $300,000, $400,000 homes are going to go down to $100,000 in value. Well, that affects the community's bond rating because that reduces their taxes, doesn't it? So as we see sea level rise, we're going to see this resilient factor playing well into the financial stability of the community. These are going to be tough issues that communities are going to have to address. And some are. The Miamis and some of the Florida communities and New York City is taking a very careful look at this and saying, we've got to prepare for this sea level rise. It is happening. It is happening now. and We've got to make sure that we're resilient as a community and that we stay financially strong.
0: As we face uh, all of these uh, storm disasters this year, Harvey, uh, Irma, and who knows what else, how much comfort should we feel with the existing flood insurance program? Uh, If you were to give it a grade, is it an A, a B, a C, a D, an F?
2: I would say it's about a C. I think it's a program that's very important. And frankly, 50 years from now, I would hope that flood insurance is actually sold by the private sector. It's part of your homeowner's policy think about it. That makes good sense. You would buy one policy for your home and it covers everything, including all you know, floods, earthquakes, fires, what have you. But we need to transition to that in a smart way so that we don't lose the other key elements of that comprehensive flood risk management program, mapping, mitigation, regulation. That's kind of what needs to happen if we want to get there.
0: Larry Larson is a policy advisor and director emeritus of the Association of State Floodplain Managers. Larry, thanks so much for taking the time today.
2: Thank you very much.
0: Let's check on the World Beyond the Headlines now with Peter Dykstra of dailyclimate.org and environmental health news, EHN.org. Peter is on the line from Atlanta, Georgia. Hey there, how you doing?
3: All right, Steve. Hi. Let's start with mixed messages from the Trump administration on how it's planning to address pressing environmental concerns.
0: Well, a lot of environmental advocates would tell you that a mixed message is the best messaging they've heard in a while from this administration.
3: Yeah, that's probably true. But President Trump took two different directions on two key appointments dealing with climate change and climate policy. Jim Bridenstine is an avid pilot, and he's the congressman for Tulsa, Oklahoma. He's Trump's belated pick to run NASA, one of several key home agencies for U.S. government climate science.
0: I seem to remember a previous member of the Oklahoma delegation from Tulsa who was also an avid pilot and who had a pretty strong profile on climate change.
3: And he still does. And, of course, you're referring to the Senate's uber-climate denier, Jim Inhofe, who's called climate change a hoax. Bridenstine's something of a protege of Senator Inhofe.
0: Presumably not good news for the state of federal climate science.
3: No, it's not. But over at NOAA, the number two slot is going to an actual scientist with an actual background in oceanography and an actual track record of concern about what the science says climate change is doing right now.
0: Well, how did that happen?
3: Another mystery, but retired Rear Admiral Tim Gallaudet will be poised to swim against the tide of climate denial espoused by the president, espoused by several cabinet members, and by quite a few senators like Jim Inhofe, who will be called upon to approve his appointment.
0: So another policy head-scratcher.
3: What's next? Well, one of the fierce new stresses of 2016, thought to be here to stay, has pretty much been AWOL for the year 2017. Do you remember Zika?
0: Oh, yeah, the widespread mosquito-borne disease that caused so many birth defects a year ago.
3: Well, in 2017, I'm happy to report that it's pretty much stopped. Cases in South America and the Caribbean are way down, and the Florida Department of Health has received one-tenth the number of new case reports than they did a year ago.
0: Well, that's good news, but uh, is there a reason for this decline?
3: We don't know what the reason is, but let's take the good news where we can get it, whether it's in Florida or Latin America, even if it's good news with a bad news component. Uh Uh-oh, I thought there'd be a catch. What's the bad news? The vaccine-making giant Sanofi Pasteur has been working on a Zika vaccine, but its partners at the U.S. Food and Drug Administration lost interest and dramatically cut funding, so no more vaccine project. It would have been nice to have a vaccine if Zika should make a comeback.
0: Agreed. Hey, uh, Peter, finally, let's crack open the history books for this week.
3: Sure, and let's set the Wayback Machine for the year 1900. The Great Galveston Hurricane of September 8, 1900 could make a pretty good claim to being the storm of the century. Galveston, just 50 miles southeast of Houston, had already blossomed into a major vacation spot in the Gulf of Mexico. It was also a major shipping town to export cotton and the other goods of the great state of Texas. In 1900, The U.S. Weather Bureau was only 30 years old, and forecasting models didn't have computers or satellites or even wireless warnings from ships at sea.
0: So we had no warning that a huge storm was bearing down on Galveston?
3: Well, that's the thing. Actually, we did, but political rivalries got in the way. The storm had already done a huge amount of damage in Cuba. Then it gathered strength across the warm waters of the Gulf of Mexico. And Cuban meteorologists tried to warn their American counterparts, but the American weathermen and the Cubans hated each other's guts. So the Cuban warnings went largely ignored.
0: And more than, what, 6,000 people perished?
3: At least 6,000. But, you know, today with modern forecasting and instant communications and the painful lessons of Galveston and other disasters, the death tolls for comparably fierce storms in a bad hurricane year, like the one we're in now, is way down from the storm of the century of the year 1900.
0: Peter Dexter is with Environmental Health News. That's ehn.org and dailyclimate.org. Thanks, Peter. We'll talk to you again real soon.
3: All right, Steve. Thanks a lot. Talk to you soon.
0: And there's more on these stories at our website, loe.org. Coming up, down at the docks on Nantucket. It's just ahead here on Living on Earth. Stay tuned.
4: Support for Living on Earth comes from the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation and from a friend of Sailors for the Sea, working with boaters to restore ocean health.
0: It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. In a minute, salmon on the run. But
5: first, this note on emerging science from Don Lyman. For the first time, scientists have used DNA collected just from water samples to conduct a fish migration study. For six months, researchers from Rockefeller University took one liter water samples each week from the East River and Hudson River in New York. As fish swim, they leave traces of their DNA in the water, from the slimy outer coating on their bodies or in their waste. By using this environmental DNA, called eDNA, the scientists were able to determine which fish swam through the water on each test day. The eDNA data correlated with previous fish migration studies using trawls with fish nets that had taken many years to conduct. This new technique requires a fraction of the work and cost of trawling and doesn't harm any fish. As for the results, the researchers identified the DNA of 42 species of fish, including most of those known to inhabit the rivers, such as Menhaden, striped bass, and toadfish. eDNA also provided the researchers with a mystery, as they found DNA of species such as tilapia, salmon, and red snapper, species that don't swim in the Hudson River. But they are fish commonly eaten by New Yorkers, leading the scientists to conclude that the DNA probably passed through humans and the wastewater treatment system. The researchers note that this could provide yet another use for eDNA, helping to identify endangered species being sold as food in local stores and restaurants. That's this week's Note on Emerging Science. I'm Don Lyman. Puget Sound, the
0: large Pacific estuary system in Washington state, offers the perfect refuge for spawning coho, chinook, and sockeye salmon. But in late August, local fishermen were bewildered when they caught Atlantic salmon as well. Days later, the news broke that 160,000 Atlantic salmon or more had escaped from damaged aquaculture nets moored off the San Juan Islands. In the wake of this great fish escape, the Wild Fish Conservancy has filed a lawsuit against the company that owned the fish farm, Cook Aquaculture, for damages to the watershed. Kurt Beardsley, the executive director of Wild Fish Conservancy, joins us now to explore the impact of this fishy jailbreak. Welcome
6: to Living on Earth, Kurt. Thank you, Steve. So uh, Kurt, how did you find out about this salmon escape? Actually, it wasn't a public announcement. It was an individual that left a message at our office that had heard a conversation between the Coast Guard and the net pen industry that there had been a problem. And so it, it was just the public basically let us know. And that was three days after the event had occurred. And there had been no previous public notice.
0: And uh, to what extent were you able to actually see the damaged
6: farm salmon pens, the damaged nets yourself? I had actually previously been up there. I just basically turned around and went right back. I took a boat out to the site and I was expecting to see a net that had basically come loose from the physical structure of the pen, the rigid structure. But instead I saw a twisted mass of steel pipe and cable and chain. I have been doing work on Atlantic salmon net pen issues for many years and I've never seen anything quite as episodic as this.
0: What happened? Do you have any idea what took things wrong there?
6: It appears that the net pen itself was structurally failing and just an average tide finally made it collapse. From your understanding
0: How aware was Cook Agriculture that they had a problem with their pens, that they were in fairly imminent risk of collapse?
6: They were very aware that their structure was structurally compromised. It was old and it needed replacing. Their reports back to the agencies stated exactly that. And they were hoping to harvest one more year out of these pens before they replaced them, but their gamble didn't work out. The sad part is is that our agencies that are supposed to oversee this allowed them to fully fill these pens with 305,000 non-native fish. They allowed them to risk the health of Puget Sound so this industry could get one more year's worth of growth. That is not very good oversight from my perspective.
0: i got to confess I'm a bit confused. Why would anyone farm Atlantic salmon In Puget Sound, the home of, well, there's
6: wonderful Pacific salmon there. Why would they do that in the first place? Well, Atlantic salmon are uh, more easily domesticated. They deal with these close containments much better than Pacific salmon. So the industry has chosen pretty much around the world to use Atlantics in that industry. And
0: what kind of impact was this type of open water aquaculture having on the region even
6: before all these Atlantic salmon escaped? That's a great question, and um, it's one that I was hoping more people would learn about during this event, because this was a catastrophic event that obviously caught a lot of people's attention, but what doesn't seem to get their attention is what happens every single day in Puget Sound. This industry is, is highly subsidized, and I say that because they are they dump all of their waste directly into Puget Sound. On some occasions, they, aside from fecal material, they'll also have pharmaceuticals or viruses or parasites that they put directly into Puget Sound that are harmful for the health of Puget Sound and for all organisms that live in Puget Sound.
0: So now that these Atlantic salmon are out in Puget Sound, some 160,000 of them, uh, more or less, I guess. What are the risks to the indigenous species? I'm thinking especially of the Chinook.
6: What risks do these farm fish pose?
0: Well, there's a host
6: of risks. First, they are going to compete for food and for habitat. They're going to compete on the spawning ground. Even though they can't successfully reproduce with Pacific salmon, they can compete for mates and have unsuccessful spawnings. And that can be a problem on its own they can introduce viruses and parasites that they may have contracted in the pen themselves. We know very little about the health of these fish because the industry is really quite opaque.
0: Now, I imagine you've seen some of these escaped farm Atlantic salmon.
6: What do they look like? We saw a number of fish that physically on the outside had some problems. We saw some that had very deformed jaws. They could have been Deformed because they they had been treated for something called yellow mouth, which basically dissolves their jaws. <laughs> it's a very ugly thing to have. These fish could not close their mouths; they were twisted jaws. They all have very worn fins. They're quite bloated, many of them, because their fat levels are extremely high. They're basically force fed to grow really quickly, 18 months at the max, instead of a couple, two or three years. We took organ tissue samples to analyze for the potential of viruses that that they may have been carrying. But the organs, many of them were almost unrecognizable. I've been doing this for 28 years. And I've seen thousands and thousands of fish. And I actually and my technical staff are baffled at what we're seeing. These are not signs of healthy fish. Something's wrong.
0: So how are the fishermen, particularly the native Lummi fishermen, responding to this bill? What benefits, if
6: any, are they seeing from bigger catches? I mean, there are a lot more fish right now. We've spent a lot of time with the Lummi tribe, and I have not seen A single tribal member that's happy about what's happening. I've seen nothing but individuals that are very upset. They're out there to catch their Pacific fish that they have evolved with for the last few thousand years. And they had to take time away from their normal fishery, which they depend on, to go and catch these fish for the industry. Because the industry's entire emergency response plan was to tell the public to go fishing. I've been working over the entire holiday here, contacting the Emergency Response Command Center that was set up in Anacortes to try to get funding for some of these fishermen that have caught these fish. They have them in cold storage. They don't want to sell them to the public. They want the industry to pay them back. And the representative I finally got a hold of from Department of Fish and Wildlife said, the industry has no responsibility to pay the public back for cleaning up their mess. I'm sorry, but it was our government that permitted this industry. Our government works for us. They need to end up getting money from this industry to pay back these individuals that are now out great amounts of time and energy and money. It's just one more aspect of how this industry is just totally subsidized by the public. They get to use public waters for free. They get to have their cleanup for free, and it's just not right.
0: Now, Kurt, you direct the Wild Fish Conservancy, and I understand that you have issued a notice of intent to sue Cook Aquaculture. It's Uh, In other words, you're filing a lawsuit. You have filed, effectively, a lawsuit. What do you hope will come out of this litigation?
6: Well, we're, we're hoping to hold them accountable for this toxic spill of these exotic fish. This was a negligent act. This was not an act of nature, as they tried to portray it to be. And when it is negligence, the release of these fish is actually considered a pollutant and we are going to hold them accountable for polluting Puget Sound and all of the biological ramifications and economical ramifications that come with such a large pollution. Kurt, before you go,
0: how many of these fish have been caught so far and what recovery work still remains, do you think?
6: Well, there's a, a lot of fish have been caught. As I was saying, gosh, a week ago, we had 50,000 pounds of them at home port in Bellingham. I just was talking to commercial fishermen yesterday and they say they're still catching these fish. So we're planning on gathering more of those fish and sampling those as well, but there's still a lot to be done. This is not over at all.
0: Kurt Beardsley is the executive director and co-founder of the Wild Fish Conservancy based in Duval, Washington. Kurt, thanks so much for taking the time today. Thank you very much, Steve. We contacted Cook Aquaculture for a statement. Their communications manager, Chuck Brown, sent an email that reads in part, We will review the Wild Fish Conservancy's claim and we will respond through proper channels. Our focus has been on properly and safely removing the fish and equipment from the farm and working with tribal partners, experts, and agencies to meet our obligations. This summer, the Living on Earth team spent a week at the University of Massachusetts Boston Research Station on Nantucket Island to report on erosion and aquatic biodiversity. And while we were there, producer Noble Ingram headed to a busy wharf to record the sounds of the harbor for an audio postcard. As a folk band entertained visitors, fishmongers hacked up their catch, and a tour guide looked for customers.
1: This is a black sea bass.
3: Cut it by its head, and then go down the spine. And then,
7: down the bottom, just kind of peel the flay off. You have 45,000 ships coming and going, and 1,000 shipwrecks around Nantucket. And then you have over 800 pre-Civil War buildings on the harbor. I'd say it's haunted. My name's Orion Cooling. I'm a, a docent and a storyteller. This is a brand new thing we're doing in Nantucket. Um, uh, this is the first time Egan Maritime Institute has been offering guided tours. And to help it create a presence, we decided we'd, we'd costume it. So I was like, I will totally wear costumes and tell history of Nantucket. So earlier today I was down here in my privateer costume, which is like three layers of wool, but it's all part of my weight loss training program for the summer, right? It's nonstop maritime fun for me. Right now I'm wearing um, the summer keeper uniform. The keepers were uh, uh, the captains of the station and their job was to hand select a crew and put them through incredibly rigorous training to become decent lifesavers. So the uniform I'm wearing, I'm wearing my, my white um, breeches. I've got my um, spats and boots on. I'm wearing a blue vest and uh, my, my keeper hat, which looks a little bit like a train conductor hat. These are things we forget in America. The train uniform actually directly comes from maritime uniforms. Our police uniforms come from maritime uniforms. The weird thing is like the billy club the police still use to this day. It goes back to a belaying pin on a ship where you make a line off to, That's what the Billy Club was. Any other questions? What is this? This is an Appalachian Mountain dulcimer. Do you guys want to hear something? Mm -hmm. Yeah, sweet. This is what's called a fast haul shanty. Shanties are meant to time out efforts on boats, right? Um, So everybody's working together. This is meant for heaving lines, putting up the mainsail, right? So it has a heartbeat to it. It goes, in South Australia, I was born, heave away, haul away, South Australia round, Cape Horn, we're bound for South Australia. Haul away, you rolling kings, heave away, haul away, the way you'll hear me sing, we're bound for South Australia. I walked out one morning fair, heave away, haul away.
0: Orion Cooling is the docent, docent, storyteller, and singer for South the Australia. Egan Maritime Institute. That audio postcard of Nantucket Wharf was produced by Living on Earth's Noble Ingram. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Savannah Christensen, Jenny Doring, Noble Ingram, Jamie Kaiser, Don Lyman, Helen Palmer, Olivia Reardon, Adelaide Chen, and Yolanda Omari. Tom Tiger engineered our show with help... Jeff Wade, and Jake Rigo, Allison Neerish-Dean composed our themes. You can hear us anytime at LOE.org, and like us, please, on our Facebook page, PRI's Living on Earth, and we tweet from at Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening.
4: Funding for Living on Earth comes from you, our listeners, and from the University of Massachusetts, Boston, in association with its School for the Environment, developing the next generation of environmental leaders